let's pray again. Lord, I, I pray, God, that uh, today that you would just uh, give us a con conviction that no matter maybe what it seems like is going on around us at different times, that you are on the throne, that you rule and reign, that you are in control, that we can trust you. Lord, that you've proven this by rising from the dead. And Lord, because of your word, because of the resurrection, because of the fulfilled prophecies, that we can be assured that you're going to come again, that you're going to set up your kingdom. So Lord, help us to hope in you, to, to trust in you, to rest in you, to rely on you. And God, I, I just ask that you would... Um, just to impart faith, to build faith, to help us to live according to your word, to walk by faith and not by sight, to not live according to our feelings and our, and our circumstances, and just not live based on everything that's going on around us. And so, Lord, I ask you to encourage and, and strengthen and lift up. And, and just draw to you, just minister to each person by the power of your spirit and help us to respond in the ways that we need to. We thank you for your word and it is true and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat. Welcome again. You got a Bible? Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. And we are going to be uh, still in the same series. The world seems out of control, but... And uh, we're going to really... Daniel chapter 7, I think, is probably, could be argued, is maybe the key chapter in the book of Daniel. The narrative section that we've been looking at has been leading up to this and, and been setting this up. And then everything is kind of going to flow out of this. In fact, I think that you could argue that Daniel chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. You know, through the, the course of this series, we've been talking about it in each message, try to give a conviction and action in the Christ connections. Well, I'm going to do that today, but I'm not going to really specifically talk about the Christ connections because they are so built in to the passage and the other verses we're going to refer to that I'm not going to have to, like, try to point them out to you and, and, and show you what they are. You can't understand Daniel chapter 7 apart from the book of Revelation, and I would say you can't understand the book of Revelation apart from Daniel chapter 7. That's, that's how uh, foundational this is. That's how all of this is really kind of intertwined together. So we're going to look at a lot of scripture today, maybe not as many illustrations as normal, so kind of work with it. But like I said, there's just so many scripture tie-ins that we're not even really going to get to all of them for time's sake. But let me start with this. Let's, can, can we do a little poll this morning? Can we, can we participate together? Let me ask you a few questions. Uh, show of hands. How many of you, uh, to be honest, how many of you adults, not, and not just because of your kids, how many of, of you adults are all into Halloween and are going to, like, dress up, that kind of thing tomorrow? Show of hands. Uh, okay. Not, not as many as I would have thought. All right. So, um, how many of you like the Jurassic Park movies? Okay. How many of you like sci-fi? <laughs> this is apparently the message for you today, Jacob. <laughs> I mean, all the sports messages that you've not liked, that this is your day, finally. Um, how, how many of you like, like horror movies? Okay, well, so we're coming to a passage of Scripture today that if you like sci-fi, those kind of things, Jurassic Park, this is probably like the text for you because uh, we're getting into what's called apocalyptic literature, and it's kind of the written version of some of those visual kind of things in a way. In fact, if we could just read the last verse of Daniel chapter 7 to start with, uh, Daniel sums this up by saying, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So, 
this might, uh, you know, be a little disturbing to you today. It, it disturbed uh, Daniel, and, you know, we kind of need to kind of get the tenor, the tone of uh, what, what he's saying here. So, just to give a little background to, to talk about apocalyptic literature and to give some understanding, Danny Aiken says this. He says, the Bible uses various genres and literary styles to teach us God's truth. Daniel 7 through 12 is primarily what we call apocalyptic literature, which is marked by visions and vivid word pictures. Dale Davis is helpful when he writes, quote, I would say that biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world. Remember, Daniel's writing to his people in exile with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery, end quote. And so Dr. Aiken says the sovereignty of God is going to be taught via sci-fi. And, and, and so, um, you know, th this is something that, you know, there's a lot of symbols here. But I think we'll see that the Bible interprets itself. And so, you know, we don't have to just like guess at the meaning of it and that kind of thing. But remember, this is ultimately written as a word of encouragement. It's not written to just, you know, so you can fill out the calendar on your little prophetic chart. Okay, that's not really ultimately the purpose of all this. In fact, when we talk about the end times, the return of Jesus, those kind of things, there's three things we can know for sure. Every earthly kingdom is going to fall, including our nation. Jesus is going to come back and set up his kingdom, and we don't know when that's going to happen. But Sidney Grananis says, in, in talking about apocalyptic literature, that, it, that there's like three purposes of it. And, and I want to mention this now, and then I'm gonna, it's important. I want to come back to it at the end. He says, it's a message of encouragement to the oppressed. It's a warning to the oppressor. And it's a call to faith for those wavering between God's truth and human wisdom. Now, let me just kind of say one more thing, then we'll get into the text, just about why this is important. So, again, you know, the title of this series, The World Seems Out of Control, But, and we're going to talk about the fact that God is on his throne today. Again, we look around, and the world seems out of control. I, I don't think, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe the Bible, even if somebody just drug you to church today, and you may disagree with everything else I, I say, I don't think I'm going to have to convince you of that one statement. We've got a lot of questions. We've got a lot of concerns What's going to happen in the election? What's going to happen with the economy? What's it mean for my future? What's it mean for my kids' uh, future? Uh, can we ever have unity in our country? Is, is Russia going to provoke a nuclear war? We could go on and on. There's lots of questions about things that are going on in the world. And, but it's really all wrapped up in the question of where are we headed. But there's a bigger question, some bigger questions behind that question, and see, really, these are worldview kind of issues. And so where are we coming from? A Christian worldview is built on these four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And there's a lot in, in Daniel chapter 7, and we don't, I don't have time to unpack this, that actually harkens back to Genesis 1 through 3. But a Christian worldview says, God created us, we're made in his image, that we fell, that we, we fell into sin, we chose to rebel uh, against him, and, and that we've wrecked the world, and that we're broken people, we live in a broken, fallen world, and things aren't what they're supposed to be. God appointed human government uh, as a protection of people, and human government does some good, uh, but human government, because it's populated and run by sinful people, does sinful things, and does harmful things. 
things, and a lot of that is the history of the world, but that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, died for our sins, rose from the dead to redeem us individually, and someday he's going to return, set up his kingdom on the earth, restore everything to the original paradise that God created it to be. In the meantime, those of us who have been redeemed, who have a relationship with King Jesus, need to live out his kingdom where we're people of truth and love and and, and justice, making a difference, being a part of restoring the world now until he comes and completely restores it. That's one view of the world. A secular worldview, though, would say that that we evolved, that, that in essence we came from Nothing, there, either there is no God or God is not involved in the world. And, and so, uh, you know, if that's true, we don't really have a soul. So we can't say uh, that, that we're sinners. And, uh, you know, in a secular worldview, the problem is not within us. The problem is outside of us. It, it's in society. Uh, it's in our environment. And, and so, uh, and, and, you know, there's not really heaven or hell. There's, you know, Jesus isn't coming back. So there's, we kind of come from nothing, go to nothing. But in the meantime, you know, we're we're trying to build kind of a secular utopia, you know, fix everything, make everything right. As Mark Sayers says, people are looking for the kingdom without the king because everybody wants justice and love and, and truth and those kind of things. Yet when we desire these kind of things, we still hurt each other and we still mess things up, which would say to me that we actually are sinners. And the question is, you know, what's true? What's, how does the world really work? And is this true when it claims that Jesus is coming back? Because, and, and this is why stuff like this matters. You may say this sounds like a just, you know, sci-fi, a bunch of crazy images and these kind of things. But where is the world headed? And what are we going to put our trust and hope in? Do we believe that we can and that we have to fix everything or that we're going to elect leaders who are going to fix everything? Or do we believe that ultimately God rules, he's reigning, and that Jesus is the one who's going to set things right? So, with with that in mind, hopefully to kind of order what we're thinking here, let's look at what the text says. So, in verse 1, it says, in, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and this is not chronological, it's, the, it's theological. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. And then Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four winds of heaven is a metaphor for saying God is in control. God is the one who is doing this. But, but, but the sea is used metaphorically often in scripture of wickedness as, as a metaphor for that. For example, Isaiah 50, 57, 20, 21 say, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace says my God, for uh, the, the, the wicked. And, and so really, if you stop and think about this, I mean, you know, you think about the sea, you think about the waves, the, the, the ocean, just, uh, you know, how up and down it is. That's the metaphor for the world that we live in. But I would contrast that with Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, which pictures a heavenly scene before the throne of God. And it says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. There's not a ripple. There's peace there. That's why we ought to take our problems to the Lord. And then uh, the, the essence of this vision is he says, Four great beasts came up from the sea, this churning sea of iniquity, of the unsettledness of humanity. It says, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. 
And, and to interpret this, we go back to Daniel chapter 2. We go ahead to Daniel chapter 8 that we'll get to next week. But that's clearly uh, talking about Babylon. It's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, what we've read in, in his story of how uh, God reduced him uh, to a beast and made him stand up and gave him a man's heart again. And then verse 5, suddenly another beast, a, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And so, again, back to ch chapter 2, uh, look forward to verse 8. This is Medo-Persia, with the raised side being Persia, which was the dominant uh, side of the alliance. The devouring three ribs may refer possibly to the three major conquests they had uh, during their empire. Verse 6, after this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And, and this is the Greek empire under Alexander that then split four ways. And so I encourage you to do this. If you don't believe the Bible's true, come back next week. Because we're going to see how explicitly this is prophesied in advance in, in, in Daniel chapter 8. And then verses 7 8, it, it says... After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And Sidney Granannis says of this, we see the Roman legions, because it's talking about the Roman Empire, marching across the world, breaking in pieces what was left of the Greek Empire, forcing regions in Asia, Africa, and Europe to submit to the Caesar in Rome. This monster was different from all the beasts that preceded it. Rome showed itself to be the first truly universal empire of antiquity. Rome was characterized by its conquering and crushing power and by its ability to con consolidate the territories which it seized. And, and so it's talking about the Roman Empire, but as is often the case with Old Testament prophecy, there's dual fulfillments. And what we're going to see as we read through the rest of the chapter, it's also pointing ahead to the one that's often called the Antichrist, uh, that will come in the last days. And so we'll touch on that some today, also touch on it uh, again next week and when we get to the end of uh, chapter 9. And so we're going to skip verses 9 through 14 temporarily. They're really the key to the passage. But we're going to go ahead to verse 15 and, and get the interpretation of the passage and then come back and focus on the heart of it. Or not the interpretation of the entire passage, the interpretation of this fourth beast. So Daniel says in verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this, an angel presumably. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So if you want all of this in a nutshell, if this is like, you know, these are crazy images, this is a lot, I don't get all this. If you just want to boil it down to one verse, it's verse 18, that these human kingdoms are going to pass away, but those who know Jesus who is king, and like we saw in chapter 2, his kingdom is going to stand forever. We are part of his kingdom, and like the book of Revelation says multiple times, we're going to reign with him. But then, Daniel says in verse 19 that he wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful. To use kind of the analogy I started with, uh, this is something of an apex predator, you could say. The, the, kind of the ultimate of these beasts. It describes him, verse 19, with his teeth of iron, nails of bronze, which devour broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which a three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. 
and he says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and, and prevailing uh, against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So he, he saw uh, Jesus coming back to defeat his enemies. But then this is what he said. This was the explanation. Verse 23, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns um, are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, it's talking about the Antichrist, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a times, three and a half years, half of what's known as the great tribulation period of seven years. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And then let's fast forward to the book of Revelation. I said the two have to go together. So Revelation chapter 13, the first part of it is about the Antichrist. The second part of it is about a false prophet who causes people to worship the Antichrist. But here's what it says. See how it connects together. Uh, John says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. So in a sense, when the Antichrist comes, he is the fulfillment, the completion, the embodiment of, the ultimate expression of, like I said, kind of the apex predator of all evil human kingdoms. But it says the dragon, which is a reference to Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months, or a time, a time, a time, and half a time, in the words of Daniel. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of the life, the book of life of the Lamb, slain, from the foundation of the world. So, the Bible explains then that this fourth kingdom is Rome, but at some point there's a revived Roman Empire headed by this man, the embodiment of evil, empowered by Satan, who is some type of world ruler. But we should also know that 1 John 2.18 says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So um, there's the Antichrist, but there's many Antichrists, false prophets, false religious leaders, evil, wicked rulers who hurt people, who persecute the people of God, who cause problems in uh, the, the world. And so, again, the Bible certainly agrees with our experience and observation that the world seems out of control. There's crazy things, there's evil, there's problems, there's difficulties, there's pain, there's suffering. But in the midst of all that, let's look at what verses 9 through 14 say. Daniel says, he watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. This is talking about God the Father. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And of course, God is spirit. Uh, this is what's called an anthropomorphism. It's the use of human uh, terminology to try to give us a picture of God. 
to try to help us to visualize in some way what he's like. It says his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. The Antichrist, I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Jesus wins. And as for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So the, king, uh, the conviction is that the world seems out of control, but God is on his throne. And again, this is our worldview. What do we believe? Do we believe that God is on his throne, ruling and reigning, even sometimes when it doesn't seem like it? Do we believe that, that God is still working out his plans, that, that God uh, is being patient to give people space and time to repent and trust him, but that Jesus is coming back to set all things right, or do we believe, again, that we came from nothing, we're going to nowhere, and that we've got to try to make the best of it while, we, while we're here, do the best we can. You know, maybe if we elect the right people, they can make things better. We can hope that things improve. We can hope that our lives uh, go okay. You know, biblical hope is more than wishful thinking. It's rooted in the person, the work, and the return of Jesus Christ. So, can I show you five things that we can count on because God is on his throne? Five things that flow from, that God does from his throne. Number one, we see in this text that God rules over every evil empire. God rules over every evil empire. It says for verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Verse 27 uh, says, uh, Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. All his dominion shall serve and obey him. Again, even if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, uh, this should not be hard to believe because it's the story of human history. Every earthly kingdom has fallen. And it's just a matter of time until current ones do. This ought to encourage us. God is using human rulers to accomplish his purposes for a season. And when that season's over, they're done, but his kingdom lasts forever. Again, is that our conviction? Is that where our hope is? Or are we going to put our hope and politicians, and governors, and presidents, and congressmen, and what are we going to hope in? Again, I'm not saying that's not important. It's very important, but it's not ultimate. Second, we see here that God from his throne is worshipped as the eternal, holy God. He's called the Ancient of Days. In effect, what the Ancient of Days means, it's very similar to, you know, when God told Moses and Jesus, pick this up and use it of himself. You know, Moses said, well, what should I tell them your name is? God says, tell them that I am that I am, which sounds a little obtuse, <laughs> but it just means that I am the self-existent, eternal, uncreated one. He's the Ancient of Days. He's eternal he always has been. He always will be. He stands outside of time and, and, and space, but then he rules over 
time and space. And then when it describes him and says his garment was as white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne was like a fiery flame. This is speaking of his purity and his holiness. Listen, this is who God is. He's the eternal, all-powerful, holy, perfect, pure, righteous God. Will we bow before him and worship him as such? Or will we make gods of our own making? And again, this is so much the story of human history. What God are we going to worship? It's the story of our, we're all worshipers. Who, what are you worshiping? We see number three, that from his throne, God judges everyone. If you notice the end of verse 10, it it says this. It says, the court was seated and the books were opened. Now that begs a question, right? What books? Well, we don't have to speculate. The Bible itself gives us an answer. Again, the key to interpreting Scripture is Scripture, particularly when it comes to this end-time stuff. I mean, listen, some people think the, the book of Revelation is like the scariest thing ever written. If you know the Old Testament, you can figure out the book of Revelation because it's quoted or alluded to again and again and again and again. Here's an example. Let's look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So what are the books that are being referred to in Daniel? Apparently in heaven, there's a book and a set of books. Now, you know, I I don't know how literally to take this or how metaphorically to take it, but the meaning is very clear. I, I would tend to more take it literally, but... There is a record kept of our sins, of our actions in heaven. And we are judged according to that unless our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, which is the record of all of those who have trusted Jesus because when we trust Jesus, His blood, His death, what He accomplished on the cross cleanses all of our sin where uh, that record of ordinances uh, that was against us, Colossians chapter 2. The record of our sins, the Bible says it was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. Therefore, Romans 8, 1, there is no more condemnation to those who are in Christ. That God has put our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. That he's drowned them in the sea of forgetfulness. That we're not judged according to our works anymore because God sees us in Christ. But... If you reject Jesus, you're judged on your merits. And listen, we're all lacking. I mean, you may be a really good person, humanly speaking. You may be a really moral person. But you're still a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And and remember, the bigger issue then our particular sins is our heart condition of if we reject God and we're prideful and we try to worship ourselves and gods of our own making, be that our own goodness and self-righteousness, that is the ultimate offense to our Creator. And so it says then in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 20, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into 
the lake of fire. You say, Jimmy, do you really believe that heaven and hell are real places and that everyone is going to inhabit one of them forever? And the answer is yes. You say, why? Let me just give you a couple things to think about. I mean, the first reason is, is because I believe the evidence says Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus talked a lot about hell and heaven. He actually talked more about hell than he did heaven. And so for people who try to, you know, say, well, you know, Paul had this version of this vengeful, wrathful God. So you need to listen uh, to, to Jesus, who was this kind, loving teacher. I'm like, have you actually read the Gospels? I mean, he talked about everlasting fire. He talked about a place where the fire is not quenched. You can't pick and choose with Jesus. But then I also just think about simply just our desire for justice. And I believe we desire justice because we're made in the image of a just God. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. pointed out in a letter from a Birmingham jail that what Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal, but we still know it's immoral. Why? Because we have a conscience, which points us to the reality that, that there is a higher law that transcends earthly laws, and these realities point to the existence of God. If truth and morality are subjective and relative, on what logical ground can we call anything objectively wrong or evil, even the Holocaust? William Lane Craig puts it this way. He says, the point is, if there is no God, then objective right and wrong do not exist. He says, in a world without God, who's to say whose values are right and whose are wrong? There can be no objective right and wrong, only our culturally and personally relative subjective judgments. Think of what this means. It's impossible then to condemn war, oppression, or crime as evil. Nor can you praise generosity, self-sacrifice, and love as good. To kill someone or to love someone is morally equivalent. For in a universe without God, good and evil do not exist there is only the bare, valueless fact of existence, and there is no one to say, you are right, and I am wrong. And here's the thing. If there's no eternal judgment, there is no justice, because there's certainly not always justice on the earth. We want this. And someone who wants this but says there is no God is actually betraying there's a God. You know, th this week the verdict was announced in, um, you know, the case in Lakeisha where Daryl Brooks, you know, killed six, you know, ran through the crowd uh, with his SUV, killed six people, injured a bunch of others. And as the verdict was announced, someone cried out, from the gallery, and I won't say everything that he said, but he cried out, burn in hell. But see, here's the thing we got to be careful of. We say, somebody's a murderer, give him justice. And he deserves justice. But if we say burn in hell about anyone, we're missing our need for grace. And we need to remember that Scripture says that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And that's not just everybody else's. That's mine and yours, too. From his throne, God judges. But here's the good news. Jesus, the God-man, left the throne. He came from heaven to earth, to take our judgment upon himself. He came, atoned for our sin, rose from the dead, and then he's ascending to heaven to claim his kingdom. 
So we saw in, in, in verses 10 and 11, we saw the Ancient of Days, God the Father seated on the throne. But look at verse 13. It says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heavens. He came to the Ancient of Days. Now let me ask you a question. In the Gospels, what's the most common term that Jesus used to refer to himself? Son of Man. Now, when we read Son of Man, I think what we tend to think is this is a reference to Jesus' humanity. But I would say, based on Daniel 7.13 and other scriptures, it's more than that. It's a messianic title. It really pictures to us that Jesus is both God and man. Let's look at some other scriptures just to kind of help us put this together. Psalm 68.4 says this, Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. Other places in the Old Testament, this metaphor of riding on the clouds is used to refer to God. John 3.13, Jesus said, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Matthew 17.22 and 23, it says, While they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. Mark 14.60-64 Uh, It says, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, this is at the the trial of Jesus. Again, the high priest asked him and saying to him, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of the heaven. Now, how do I know that this title is more than just referring to his humanity? Look at how the high priest responded. It said, he tore his clothes, uh, which was expressing his indignation, and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. What was the blasphemy in their minds? That he was claiming to be God. That he was claiming to be the Messiah. Look at Acts 1, 9 through 11. It says, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And then Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. One of the reasons that I believe the Bible is actually the word of God is how it fits together so seamlessly. Again, God is judge. He's just. He upholds his law. But the good news is, is that Jesus, who is God, the God-man, came and took that judgment so God can justly justify sinners. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father, where he has claimed the kingdom, where he rules and reigns and, and ministers on our behalf from the throne of God. This is the good news of Jesus. Listen, we deserve judgment. But Jesus took that judgment so we can be forgiven. And then number five, we see here that he returns to defeat his enemies, rescue his people, and share his kingdom with them forever. In verse 21 and 22, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Verse 27, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all his dominions shall serve and obey him. 
Jesus wins, we win in the end. Do we believe that? Do we believe this is where the world is headed? You know, and I'm not gonna, I probably don't have time to read it, but I just give you Revelation 19, 11 through 21 as a reference where we see Jesus literally coming back and, and, and defeating his enemies. So, if this is the conviction that the world seems out of control, but God is on his throne, what would be the action we should take based on that? It is that we will trust, serve, obey, and worship Jesus, who is our Savior and King. We will trust, serve, obey, and worship Jesus, who is our Savior and King. Is he your Savior and King? Are you trusting Him, serving Him, and obeying Him? What are you putting your hope in? What are you basing your life on? What are you basing your eternity on? So let me close with this. I, I mentioned the Gradanus quote at the beginning about the point of, of, of apocalyptic literature. And I want to circle back to that and, and close with just some applications based on that. First of all, he said that apocalyptic literature is designed to be encouragement for the oppressed. So let's be encouraged by this in three different ways. One, and, and this may not sound encouraging, but it is, is to be realist and expect suffering in this fallen, broken, and evil world. And, and why is that encouraging? It's encouraging because if we somehow think that because we're a Christian or we believe in God or whatever, that we can expect utopia now, we're going to be sadly disappointed. Some people lose their faith because of that. It's part of the lie of the prosperity gospel. Again, we can't have the kingdom fully, at least, without the king. We're supposed to be a picture of the coming kingdom, but we still live in a fallen, evil, broken world. And, and Jesus said... That in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Uh, Paul said that we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. It's the Stockdale paradox. Uh, Admiral James Stockdale, he was the highest ranking uh, POW in the Hanoi Hilton in, in, in the Vietnam War. He survived it. And, and, and the Stockdale paradox is confront the brutal reality of the facts of your current reality, but at the same time maintain unwavering faith that you will prevail in the end. That's in effect what this chapter is saying. Yeah, life is tough. We live in a fallen, broken, evil world. We're sinful. Uh, there's world governments and rulers that are like beasts, and that's what we're dealing with. Be realistic about it, but know in the end you can have hope and faith because Jesus wins. You will prevail when it's all said and done because he prevailed. So be a realist. Number two, view and live life. From a biblical, God-centered viewpoint. You know where a lot of our anxiety comes from? Not all of it, but part of it. It's because we're Christians, but we don't live with a Christian worldview. Sinclair Ferguson has said this. He says, our gaze must always penetrate beyond the terrible events of history to the throne of God. Only in the assurance that he reigns will we be able to live triumphantly when we cannot trace or understand his plan of victory. A lot of the times we freak out because we look around us and we fail to look up. We forget that God's on his throne. But then number three, we can be encouraged because we can hope in what Jesus has done for us. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Listen, if you're in Christ, your hope, your inheritance, your future is as secure as as the resurrection of Jesus. 
If Jesus rose from the dead, you have hope. Listen, biblical hope is a no-so, certainty, assurance kind of hope. Again, earthly hope is at best, this is what I want to happen, but I don't know if it's going to happen or not. I mean, you may say, I hope to be healthy in the next year. You don't know if it's going to happen. You may say, I hope so-and-so wins a certain uh, political race. You don't know if it's going to happen. You may say, I hope the economy gets better. Uh, don't know if it's going to happen. You may say, I hope to be, live to be 90 years old. You don't know if it's going to happen. Listen, if, if all we're basing our hope on are things that are not guaranteed and can be taken away, how do we ever really have hope? But if Jesus rose from the dead, that's something that's settled forever. What are you hoping in? Now, apocalyptic literature was given as a warning. And the warning of this text is that God's judgment is real and certain. Don't be unprepared. But then also we saw that it's a call to faith. And so there's a decision to make. What do you believe? Do you believe God's on his throne? Do you believe he's worthy of worship? Do you believe that he's going to judge you? Do you believe that the only hope to, es to escape that judgment, to be saved from that judgment, is the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, died for your sins, rose from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead, that he's coming back to defeat his enemies, to rule, to reign, to establish his kingdom. What are you hoping in? But then there also comes a point where if that's what we say we believe, we've got to act on it. We've got to get off the fence and not have head knowledge, but trust, surrender to, serve, give our lives to Jesus as our God, our Savior, our Lord, and our King. Listen, He loves you. God's holy. He has to judge sin. But He loves you so much that He came and bore all that judgment that all the righteous wrath of God, hell in a sense, was poured out on Jesus on the cross for you. Listen, you know you're a sinner. You know you're going to die. You know this world is uncertain. Why would you not put your hope and trust in Jesus, the one who died for you and the one who rose from the dead? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.